Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us through Christ. And we are desiring to hear from you this morning. We want to glory in the gospel and the message of the cross. So, Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a sophomore in college, I helped the, uh, one of the campus ministries plan an evangelistic event on our campus. And I, I didn't go to a Christian school. I just went to a, a state school. And it was very secular, and it had all the indifference towards spiritual things that usually characterize a secular campus. Uh, but we were eager to reach our campus for Christ, and we really wanted to do it by having a kind of revival meeting right in the middle of the student center that was on campus. I was friends with the president of the Baptist Student Union at that time, and he and I had been influenced when we were in high school in our youth groups by a speaker who was really well known in our neck of the woods. And this evangelist had had done um, outreaches to my youth in my home church. I loved him. He was really cool, really relatable. He had this riveting testimony about how God had saved him out of drug addiction. And he could teach the Bible in a way that I hadn't ever heard anybody teach the Bible before. He was, the thing I really liked about him was that he was hilarious. So whenever he taught the Bible, he just, he made you laugh. And as he kind of riffed his way through teaching the Bible, and he would always bring it down to some poignant conclusion that young people just inevitably res responded to. And so I thought the guy was so hilarious and so relatable and so um, <clears throat> infectious. I really believed that if we could just get him in front of as many students as possible at our, our university, then it would have the same effect there that it had at our youth group. There would be a mass of conversions on our campus. Through his sheer force of personality and infectious humor, I knew that he would close the deal with students on our, our campus, if we could just get him there. And so my friend, the BSU director, uh, invited him, and he agreed to come. And we were both just so excited about this. We, all we had to do was to advertise the event. And our main goal was to get people in the room. So we came up with the brilliant idea of hanging up signs around campus that said, come and hear so-and-so, the humorist. And that's all we did. We didn't even bill it as a Christian event. We just hung up signs saying, this guy's a humorist. And, uh, and we put his picture on the poster. And so when the night finally came, uh, all these people showed up. And, of course, there were a lot of Christian students who showed up from uh, different campus ministries. But then there were lots of other people who showed up who had nothing to do with Christianity, who were, you know, came in with their nachos and their drinks thinking that they were coming to a comedy show. And they walked in, and they were like, what is this? They hear the there's a worship band up there. And they're like, what in the world is this? And I remember one student coming in and looking around like, he was, he was mad it was because it was an obvious bait and, and switch. 
And I remember thinking, oh, if you would just wait. The guy just turned around and walked out. And I was thinking, if you would just wait and listen to this guy talk, you would be saved. But our, our problem was that it never occurred to us as we were planning this that we were doing anything wrong in advertising the event like it was a comedy show. It never like, registered that there was something wrong with that. And, and perhaps even worse, it never occurred to us how much trust we had invested in our speaker's charisma and cool factor. In fact, we thought it was precisely because of his charisma and cool factor that we were going to have this big revival on our campus. And so we, we were just immature and, and foolish in many ways. And our event ended up being this kind of a flash-in-the-pan thing. It came and went and forgotten almost as quickly as it was conceived. But there's a real temptation there, isn't it? Isn't there for us? It's not just sophomores in college who are thinking about gospel ministry in this way. That it's all about how you can impress people with a kind of rhetoric and a kind of presentation that's cool in the eyes of the world. What does it reveal about us when we try to add our own little cool factor upgrades to the gospel? What does it say about us when we try to paper over a decidedly uncool message with a contrived sort of hip, relatable veneer? Or at least address it up in, some, in such a way that it doesn't feel so offensive anymore. I think it reveals a couple of things. Number one, it reveals that we lack, I think, the courage of our convictions. It reveals that we don't think the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough for the mission that God has given to us. It reveals that we believe the message itself has some obvious shortcoming. It's not enough. The gospel's not enough to save and to sanctify sinners. And so we have to give the gospel a little assist with our cleverly devised enhancements until eventually we're no longer trusting in the gospel as the power of God into salvation, but we're trusting in our own little enhancements, our little cool factors that we add to it. So it, it reveals that we lack the courage of our convictions, but it also reveals that we lack the character of our convictions. We often don't want to bear the reproach associated with the cross. We don't like it that our message is often unpopular and considered folly by people. And so we believe if we can just dress things up enough, our friends and our neighbors will con congratulate us for our convictions rather than despise us for our convictions. And so in some ways, and I know it's not like this way all the time, um, not everybody despises us for our convictions, but there is a a contempt in the world for what we believe. And sometimes I think our, intents, our attempts to enhance the gospel with slick presentations and stylish worship services and all of that, I think it can, can kind of reveal that we wish to be out from under the reproach of the cross. So there's kind of a self-justifying kind of an impulse that can go along with this. And the problem with that is that the Christian faith can't be treated that way. The Christian faith is irreducibly cross-centered. 
There is no true Christianity where there is a refusal to take up one's cross to follow Jesus. So if you don't like the reproach of the cross, you don't like Christianity. That's the point. In many ways, this is what was going on in the Corinthian church when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to them. As we mentioned in previous weeks, the Corinthians had had divided themselves up into different factions within the church based on their devotion to different teachers. And they were saying things like, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. And so their devotion to these teachers, uh, we think, may have been connected to the fact of who who baptized them. And so Paul says in verse 17, Christ did not send me to perform baptisms, So that you could glory in my name. But he sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so that's what we looked at last week. And the Corinthians apparently were valuing eloquence and worldly wisdom. People who would be esteemed in the world as they presented uh, the gospel. They, They liked, the Corinthians liked being kind of hangers on to these teachers that they thought best exemplified this worldly wisdom. But Paul says that such things nullify the power of the cross. And so Paul aims to show them that the root of their divisiveness, their devotion to these different teachers, is really a value system that's completely at odds with the message of the cross. Do you see this? He's getting behind the behavior to what's motivating the behavior. He's getting behind the divisions to the prideful sinful, worldly self-interest that's motivating the divisions. And so I think you can divide this text into three. And Paul says three things about the message of the cross that it's instructive here. The message of the cross is not going to be acceptable to the world's value system. But what is it? The message of the cross is three things. It defies worldly wisdom. The message of the cross is revealed in the gospel... And the message of the cross is power is the power and wisdom of God. So in verses 18 through 20, it defies worldly wisdom. Verses 21 and 22, it's revealed in the gospel. Verses 23 and 25, it's the power and wisdom of God. So um, look at verse 18, where it's the message of the cross defying worldly wisdom. Paul says this in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now that first word, for, is telling us that this verse is explaining why God sent Paul to preach the gospel. And why he sent him to do it without eloquent wisdom, as he says in verse 17. He sent Paul to do this because the message of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. God sent Paul to preach the gospel because it's the gospel that saves, not eloquence that saves. Do you see that? But notice that Paul says that humanity is divided into two groups. There are, first of all, those who are perishing, and then there are those who are being saved. Those who are perishing refers to the people who are on their way to dying and to judgment. Paul teaches elsewhere that the wages of sin is death, right? That's what we all earn because of sin. 
So every person apart from the grace of God is on their way to this great calamity called death. And apart from grace, they will have to face not only dying in this life, but also the second death, the, the lake of fire. And if they don't repent, they are perishing. They are on their way to perishing. They are in the process of dying and going to judgment. That's what Paul means by those who are perishing. But then he talks about this second group. Those who are being saved. They're not on their way to death and judgment, but they're on their way to salvation from death and judgment. Salvation, therefore, in the way Paul talks about it, is not just a, a past event that happened to us when we first believed. It's an ongoing reality. It says those who are being saved. So salvation has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning occurs when you experience new birth and trust in Christ and experience forgiveness of sins. The middle is happening right now through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit transforming you into the image of Christ. The end of salvation happens one day in the future after, uh, after your death or at the Lord's return when God raises up your mortal body and gives you resurrection life in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's why Paul can talk about those who are being saved. So there are those who are on their way to death, in judgment, and there are those who are on their way to eternal life. They are being saved. But you can't tell them apart just by looking at them in this life because we're all dying. All of us have broken down bodies, and we can't just by looking at each other go, oh, that's a Christian, that's not. But you can tell these people apart by their response to the message of the cross. And I think that's the point of verse 18. In fact, our destinies are determined by our response to the message of the cross. So look what he says. The ones who are perishing, the ones who are on their way to judgment, they hear the gospel and they regard it and respond to it as folly or foolishness. So in keeping with the Greek philosophical tradition, the Corinthians, they held worldly wisdom in high regard. And that means they held its opposite, folly or foolishness, in low regard. And so the question is, what does it mean to regard the message of the cross as folly? Well, it's not just foolishness, but it's all the dishonor that's associated with foolishness in their culture. So it means um, it, to, to regard something as folly means to regard it as rationally inconsistent, emotionally unworthy, spiritually weak, and socially shameful. Okay, so there, there's an intellectual component, there's an emotional component, there's a spiritual component, there's a social component. And it's a dishonor at every single level. That's what it means to regard something as folly. So, in other words, those who are perishing think that the cross, this message that we hold, they think it's contemptible, according to Paul. That's what it means to say the message of the cross is to those who are perishing folly. And of course, that's no surprise. Why would they think otherwise? Why would they believe that a crucified Jew is the savior and the king of the world? It really is kind of preposterous when you think about it. Why would they admit out loud that a dead Jew's body stopped being dead after three days? Why would anybody believe that? Such notions sound more like fantasy 
than, than fact. They, don't, they offend wisdom rather than fortify wisdom. And that's how a lot of people responded to it in the culture that the Corinthians were living in. And so people thought of it as rationally inconsistent, emotionally unworthy, spiritually weak, socially shameful. And so the question is, as Christians, how do you break through that? How do you break through the fact that people, by nature, seem to just hold the cross in contempt? Some people will try to break through it by changing the message and removing the contemptible parts and enhancing it with worldly wisdom. That's one way you can do it, but that's the wrong way to do it. When someone regards the gospel as rationally inconsistent, emotionally unworthy, spiritually weak, and socially shameful, how do you get them to believe otherwise? The only way that you can do it biblically is by breaking through their indifference with the power of God. There is nothing that you and I can do to break through that contempt. We don't have it within ourselves to do that. And it doesn't matter how many clever evangelistic speakers you get, how many degrees you pile up, how many fog machines we put up here, whatever Okay, it takes to impress people. There's nothing that we can do to break through that. We have to have the power of God to break through that. But what is it that's the power of God? It's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. People get saved from the wrath to come by believing in a message that the world regards as contemptible. The very thing that they regard as contemptible is the only thing that can save them and is powerful enough to turn back their idea that it's rationally inconsistent, emotionally unworthy, spiritually weak, and socially shameful. This is why salvation can only come to a person's heart by miracle because they've got to be saved by the very thing that by nature they despise. Isn't that unbelievable that God set it up this way? Well, we'll find out later. He set it up this way on purpose. We'll look at verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The difference between those who are perishing and those who are being saved is how we respond to the gospel. If you respond in faith to the gospel, you have found the gospel to be the power of God because you're responding to the power of God. Verse 19. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Now, verse 19 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. And John just read this a moment ago in the Old Testament scripture reading. And it, the context there, I think, is really important in Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 14 is this pronouncement of judgment against God's people in Judah. And their political and religious leaders were trusting in their own wise and realistic plans to protect the kingdom of God. And they did this by making a military alliance with Egypt. And they did this rather than listening to the word of the prophet and trusting in God. Okay, So they regarded what the prophet was saying with contempt and they trusted in their own plans to save themselves instead. They thought, we don't need God to save us. We'll get the Egyptians to save us. Prophets telling us to trust in God, forget him. Don't want to listen to that. That's foolishness. That's folly. 
We're going to seek out Egypt. They're going to help us. And so God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy their ingenious plans and prove them not to be so ingenious after all. And so these wise rulers aren't going to be saved by their own wise plans. They will be saved by God's plan or they won't be saved at all. You see the point here? And do you see why Paul is reading Isaiah and he's thinking, this is telling us how we're supposed to think about these things. God has always been frustrating the wisdom of the wise. Salvation has never been according to the wisdom of the discerning people of this world. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See what he's saying? Paul's highlighted the failure of the wise men in Isaiah's day to grasp salvation. He's now connecting their failure to the wise men of his own day to grasp salvation. Verse 20 begins with these three rhetorical questions about the wise men that the Corinthians would have recognized. And those wise men are, he says they're the one who is wise. I think he's talking about the philosopher of the day. Sophisticates like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and any number of other philosophers that people would have known about. Where's the wise man? Where's the philosopher? Where's the scribe? That refers to the expert in the Jewish law. Where's the debater of this age? That's talking about the popular orators that used to come through the the towns in the Greco-Roman world and would dazzle people with their amazing oratory and rhetoric. So these are just, these are the wise men that would have been recognized by both Jews and, and Gentiles in Paul's day. And they would have been held in high regard. Okay, they would have come with fog machines and light shows and and a loud band. Okay, these were the these were the celebrities of Paul's day, especially the orators that would come through town and dazzle people with their oratory. They received the same sort of acclaim and public adulation that today we lavish upon movie stars and and sports heroes. So these were the people that everybody looked up to. The the wise and the scribe and the debater of this age. These were the people that everyone wanted to be like. These were the people who were at the top of the social ladder. These were the people who were in the know. And it's as if Paul is looking at the Corinthian congregation. He's noticing the absence of the people in the church. And he's saying, where's the philosophers in here? Where's the Torah scholar? Where's the orator? I don't see any of those guys in this church. Which means those guys, with all their vaunted wisdom, they did not make their way into the congregation of the redeemed through their own wisdom, knowledge, and eloquence. That doesn't get you in. God has exposed their wisdom as foolishness because they are still falling short of salvation despite all of their fine qualities. And this is how God works. He's not interested in exalting the wisdom and the glory of man in saving us. In fact, he's very much interested in nullifying the wisdom and glory of man so that he can exalt his own wisdom and glory in saving us. And this is how God has always worked. He doesn't go to the people who are well-esteemed and strong on their own and who pull up their own bootstraps and are self-sufficient, he goes to the weak, the people who are despised, and he uses them. 
because it exalts him when he does that and his strength and not their strength. He doesn't go to the wise and discerning and say, I'm going to use that so that they can get credit for being wise and discerning. He goes to people who aren't considered wise and discerning. And he makes them wise and discerning. But who gets the glory from that? God gets the glory from that. You remember how Israel got its first king? King Saul? The Bible says that the children of Israel got tired of Samuel ruling over them as prophet and judge. And so they, the Bible says they rejected God as king. And instead they wanted to install their own king so that they could be like all the other nations. Right? The, the other nations are glorious. They have these kings. Why can't we have a king who will lead us out to battle and defeat all of our enemies? There's nothing wrong with wanting a king per se, but there's a lot wrong with people wanting a king because you reject Yahweh as your king and because you want to imitate the pagans. But that's what they wanted, and so God gave them what they wanted. And God gave them a king that looked good on the outside, and his name was Saul. The Bible says he stood a head taller than everybody else, and he was better looking than anybody else in Israel. So we got a guy with movie star good looks, and he looks strong, and he projects strength. He had an attractive appearance. And that's what the children of Israel wanted. That's what God gave them. But even though Saul checked off all the boxes in terms of worldly wisdom, he was somebody that everybody wanted to be like, somebody even pagans could admire. He looked like that. He was rotten on the inside. He had disobeyed God on two occasions, and so God rejects Saul as king. And God says that he's chosen somebody else to be king. And it's not going to be a guy who looks good on the outside, but a guy who is good, a man after God's own heart. And when Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the next king, Samuel wants to choose the oldest and the strongest. And God says, no, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees, but for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I'm not going to pick somebody like we pick Saul. Looks good according to worldly wisdom standards. We're going to pick the one that I want. And so they chose David, the youngest of the sons. And God made foolish the plans of the worldlings. He chooses a boy through whom would come the salvation of the world. I, this is just one example. This is, happens over and over in Scripture where God is frustrating the wisdom of the wise by choosing the weak and the despised. He rejects our plans for our own salvation and he implements his own plan for salvation and says, Come with me. Our own plans for salvation are never the right plan. God's plan is always the right plan, and it's almost always counterintuitive to worldly wisdom because it's not based on human estimations of the way things ought to be. It's based on a divine estimation of how God might exalt his own glory through saving us. And he frustrates the wisdom of the wise when he does this. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with the fact that the most important thing in your life, salvation through Christ, is regarded as utter foolishness by many of the wise people of this age. Are you okay with that? They regard our message with contempt and they oftentimes regard us with contempt. 
Because the message of the cross defies everything that they hold dear. So it's a real, it's, it's an awesome thing that God has, has commissioned to us to do in the Great Commission. He has commissioned us to save the world by means of the very thing that they despise by nature. Isn't that unbelievable that he does it that way? That means we can't do it. <laughs> he has to do it. If it happens, it means that he's doing it. That's what it means. That's why Paul gets into this chapter and says, It's by his doing that you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Nobody can do this. So the message of the cross defies worldly wisdom. Paul's saying, I'm not going to change up the way I'm preaching. We're not going to change up the way we're doing ministry to meet the standards of worldly wisdom. You don't understand what the cross is all about if you do that. So it defies worldly wisdom, but also the message of the cross is revealed, and in particular revealed in the gospel. Look what he says in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, again, that word for means that verse 21 is going to explain why the philosopher and the scribe and the orator have failed to be saved by their own wisdom. Okay? Why, why, are they, why have they failed to be saved by their own wisdom? It's because God was pleased to reveal salvation through the preaching of the gospel. Why was God pleased to reveal salvation through preaching? Two reasons he gives. Number one there is in verse 21. Because in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God had to reveal it because people did not philosophize their way into this knowledge of how to be saved. There's no one who can do that. The world did not know God through wisdom, he says. That means that not... No philosopher, Thales, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Epicurus, any of the other luminaries from the Greek pantheon of philosophers, none of those guys are able to reason their way to God. And if those guys, the best that humanity has to offer in their thinking, if those guys can't discover who God is and how we're saved through Christ just by using reason, just by being eloquent, if they can't do it, then nobody can do it. Including us. For all their wisdom and learning, they, even they, the smartest among us, have to have revelation if they want to know God. We can't discover this by ourselves. So God is pleased to reveal things through, the pre through preaching, through the revelation of the gospel, because human wisdom won't get us there otherwise. But the second reason that God was pleased to reveal salvation through the, through the gospel message is in verse 22. And I would just, without going too deep into this, verse 22 actually goes with verse 21. Translation is good, but I'd actually put a period at the end of the sentence in verse 22 and put it with verse 21. So it's the second reason why Paul, why God was pleased to reveal salvation through the gospel. It's because Jews demand signs and Greeks seek for wisdom. God has to reveal salvation through the gospel because Jews demand signs, Greeks seek for wisdom. That means people are looking for the wrong things. <laughs> okay? So, verse 21, 
God has to reveal it because they know the wrong things. Here in verse 22, they're looking for the wrong things. You remember what the Jews over and over were asking Jesus during his ministry? Show us a sign. Why they want to know a sign? Because these signs, these miracles that Jesus performed were acts of power. They were the evidence that Jesus had the moxie to take on the Romans and to destroy them. They wanted signs that the kingdom was coming in power so that Jesus, this Messiah, would put his foot on the neck of the Romans. They wanted signs because they wanted to defeat those enemies. So they're saying, perform signs. Perform signs. Scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 12. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, which means the resurrection of the dead, right? The point was that they wanted him to perform these signs, these acts of power, because they wanted proof that the Messianic kingdom was coming in to destroy the Romans. The Greeks, likewise, they were looking for wisdom because they wanted someone who had all the intellect and sophistication of a philosopher or an orator. They wanted strength of mind and eloquence of expression. They did not want someone talking about a dying and a rising Messiah. Do you remember when Paul went to preach to the philosophers at Mars Hill? Do you remember how they treated him there? They listened to him until he got to what part? The resurrection. And when he started talking about the resurrection of Jesus, it says they mocked him. That is what it means for the world to regard the message of the cross as foolishness. They mocked him, the philosophers of this world. And so it says Paul went out from their midst. So God has to reveal salvation through the gospel. Why? Because the best specimens of mankind are missing the mark. They're thinking the wrong things. They're seeking the wrong things. They are so far off from the truth that God has to stoop to reveal it in his son and then in the preaching of the gospel. And I would just encourage you to take a look around in this room. Look to your right and your left. We got any philosophers in here that got in here because of their philosophy or wisdom? Let's just take a poll right now, just of the members of, of Kenwood Baptist Church. Let's take a poll. All of those who got saved as a result of their own profound wisdom and insight, raise your hands. Don't be bashful. If you one day, without the help of a Bible, without the help of God's revelation, if you one day were able to reason your way through to salvation, raise your hand. Does anybody in here have a testimony that goes like this? You know, I studied philosophy for a long time. And I came to realize that there seems to be something wrong with the human condition. There's death and suffering in the world, so I reasoned that that suffering must mean and must be a result of human rebellion against the Creator. And we indeed deserve eternal suffering for our failure on this account. And as I was reasoning, the thought came to me that this Creator must love us. And He loves us so much He decided to take on flesh and become like us, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, to offer Himself up as a propitiatory sacrifice. Nobody ever came to that on their own. You didn't get that because you reasoned your way to that. 
You got that because it was revealed to you. Nobody has that testimony. Nobody outside this room has that testimony. No one in all of human history can say that's their testimony. How do we know that? Because Paul says that the salvation that you and I believe in is what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You can't know these things through human wisdom. We are like people digging around in the filth with our head pointed at the ground and we can't see the sun above us because we won't see it above us. And so God has to reach down, take our chin and say, look, this is what it means to know me. That means a couple of things for us. We have to be humble. We did not come into salvation because we were smarter or more spiritually sensitive than other people. No, because of our own sin and willfulness, we shared in the blindness that afflicts every single person, that it keeps them from seeing what they ought to see and believing what they ought to believe. That's all of us. And it ought to humble us and open our mouths in praise to God who has mercy on us. But it also means this. It also means that nobody else is going to come to salvation because of worldly wisdom. They're not going to reason themselves into the kingdom. They're going to have the gospel preached. They will have to have the gospel preached to them. And the same gospel that saved us will be the same one that saves them by faith. And that means that the simplest gospel presentation has more power in it to save than all the philosophers and orators in the world. And there's not a Christian sitting in this room who can't go out on that street and proclaim this word and see God land in power when he chooses to do so. If we wish to see the power of God, we don't need to get degrees. We, need, we just need to bear witness to what God has revealed in Christ. That's what we need. And you can have utter confidence in that. The message of the cross defies worldly wisdom. The message of the cross is revealed in the gospel. And finally, the message of the cross is power, the power and wisdom of God. Look at verse 23 quickly. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Did you see that? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You know, it's really hard for us to relate to what the cross meant to your average first century person living in the Roman Empire. I mean, we, wear the, we think of the cross as jewelry. Um, that's not how they thought of it back then. I mean, the cross, everybody knew that Jesus was a crucified Jew and that the punishment he underwent was the worst and most disgraceful way to die. It was something that the Romans did to humiliate slaves when they rebelled. It was an unspeakable torture to behold, and it was also unbearably shameful to undergo it. It would be like saying, we preach Christ executed in the electric chair. It, it's that kind of horror and shamefulness and worse. 
Nobody would be impressed by that. And yet Paul's saying, we preach Christ crucified. He's putting the shame right at the center. You see that? Paul's saying the the cross is the heart of our message. No matter how people recoil when they hear it, and many do indeed recoil. The Jews find the cross a stumbling block because there's no power in it. It's weakness. There's no conquering Messiah, Messiah in it. So they stumbled over it. The Gentiles simply regard it as foolish, inconsistent with reason, socially shameful. Verse 24, but to those who are called, that means to the saved people. It's not a stumbling block. It's not foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ, not a stumbling block, but the power of God. Christ, not foolishness, but the wisdom of God. You see that? The called are those who've been singled out by God for salvation. God calls them forth. They respond to the gospel with faith and they find Christ not to be foolish and weak. They find him to be power and wisdom. Why? Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why do saved people view the gospel favorably? Because what the world regards as foolish is actually wiser than man. And what the world regards as weak is actually stronger than man. And so God uses the foolishness of our message to save those who believe. That's just how this thing works. And the question is, are we ready to embrace that? I've told you the story before about now, one of my favorite pastors got saved. His name's Tommy Nelson. And uh, he was saved in a, in a strange sort of a circumstance. He was in college. He was a pagan living for himself. And a campus crusade guy came to his dorm room and witnessed to his roommate. Tommy was up on his bunk, hiding and not a part of the conversation. And this campus crusade guy was witnessing to his roommate. His roommate didn't care at all about the Campus Crusade guy. Tommy's up there listening and getting saved. <laughs> and Tommy hears the gospel and it changes his life. And he's not even the one being talked to. And he goes on and he becomes this, this pastor and he becomes a very well-known Christian speaker. God changes his life. And, you know, he becomes uh, very esteemed in Christian circles. And fast forward 10 years... He's at his 10-year high school reunion. And he sees a couple of his old buddies who knew him when he was a pagan from high school. And these buddies come up to him. He hadn't seen them in forever. Tommy has this new life in Christ. It's kind of a, a very successful pastoral uh, ministry. These two guys come up to him and they say, What do you do? And he says, I'm a pastor. And they laughed at him. And one of them said, do you handle snakes? They laughed at him and they just sort of mocked him. They thought it sounded silly. This guy, we knew, is believing this. He said a little while later at this reunion, he hears a voice behind him. A girl calls out. It was a girl he knew in high school. Tommy Nelson, 
I heard you became a pastor. Big smile on her face. I heard you got saved. She said, I got saved too. And she sat down with them and they told each other their stories and she just cried as she wept as she told how God had saved her and changed her life. That's how it is in the world with the preaching of the gospel. Some people think it is foolishness and they will mock us. And some people will hear the very same message and it will be the power of God to them. But guess what? You never get to see the power of God unleashed in people's lives, like in that woman's life, if you're unwilling to associate yourself with what people mock. If you're constantly trying to de-emphasize the hard edges of the gospel, those things that the world finds shameful, you're taking away the very thing that's going to bring the power of God to salvation. We have to preach Christ and Him crucified. That is the power of God to salvation. It was the power of God to you and to me. It's going to be the power of God to the people that we speak to. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray you'd use this word to make us more like Christ and to embolden us to trust not in ourselves and our own eloquence and wisdom and efforts. But Lord, I pray you'd Inspire us to make efforts because we know that you have all the power and that you work through the gospel that you've given us to preach. So, Father, humble us and embolden us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.